Good morning. Would you take God's word and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5? For those that are visiting, we're navigating this book this summer. And the basic premise is that Solomon comes along and says, listen, I'm going to view life without God and see where it takes me. And so he goes down almost every venue possible from his standpoint to see what happens when you live this way and remove God from the picture. What do you end up with? And of course, he starts with the premise, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Some translations use the word meaningless. Others use the word empty. The Hebrew word there really means all three of those. It means that without God, your life will end up with no purpose, no meaning. There won't be joy. There won't be comfort. Yes, these pursuits can temporarily give us those things. But in the long run, life apart from God Life as you know it ceases to exist inside your soul and heart. This morning we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Now, during political elections, in case you are not aware there's one coming up, sociologists tell us there's a rise in class conflict. See, what happens is, and what's common, is that depending what party you are for, you villainize the other. So since we're talking about acquiring more this morning, the political left demonizes the rich. And they say they're greedy, they're unscrupulous, they rob the poor, they oppress people so they can get rich. The political right says, no, 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 that's not how it is. See, the poor are actually lazy and titled, and we're being fleeced through taxes. But no matter what, your, what side you're on, have you noticed there is the good guy and the bad guy? Although this election, we're trying to find, I guess, the good guy in all this. Stop it. I should not have said that. Sorry. But in a political election, there's this tension. It's like an old Western shootout. Now, the church is no different. You have some that are politically left and some that are politically right. And both sides cherry pick scripture. And what they attempt to do is create Jesus in my political image. And in the midst of quoting scripture that defends their position, they mudsling and name call. And those two should not exist simultaneously. Now, just in case you're not aware of this, I'm going to remind you. That the church is called to think biblically. Just not culturally or political. And I'm probably going to offend some people this morning by some of the comments that Solomon makes. And you note I said Solomon makes these things for two reasons. One is Solomon does get into politics. Now I know some of you are hoping that some Sunday morning I will say something like this. This is who Jesus would vote for and here's why. That is not going to (laughs) happen. See, part of the problem is we have the eyes of the kingdom of this world and not the kingdom of God. Christians are to think biblically. We are of the kingdom of God. Yes, we are citizens of this world. And as a citizen of this country, we do have a responsibility to vote. 
And so I encourage you to use wisdom. Look at issues rather than being subservient to an ideology that causes us to name call and mudsling. Creating false narratives that suit our thinking. You know, false narratives, they're what we call infomercials or commercials. I mean, we know most of what they say is not true. I was on the opposite end of the media one time when we ran a, a shelter for teens that were living on the street. It was an overnight place they came. And the newspaper wanted to do an article. And I sat down, did the interview. And when I read the article, I was, I should not have been, but I was astounded because they took quotes, yes, but took them out of context and made me say things that were not intended for me to say in order to make the teen shelter look, at least have a negative impact in the way that the article was read. So, now if you were here two weeks ago, you noticed that we had our closing VBS program here. And part of the reason why is because we love our kids and we value what we teach them. And everything that morning was a reminder that we are to live out what was taught. And they learned about Noah who took a stand and was the only one righteous. Imagine what it was like to live in his age. So let me ask yourself this question. What are you teaching your kids by the way you're navigating the political landscape? I mean, what are you really teaching them? Are you teaching them who to vote for? Or are you teaching them how to think biblically? There's a vast difference. Now, here's my suggestion. In your bulletins, there's a prayer. I want you to pull it out. It's a very old prayer. I say it was old because this prayer was written in 1084. I simply call it the 1084 prayer. And... I think that we have the responsibility in our country to navigate America culture with wisdom. We have the responsibility to align ourselves with God and his kingdom. And how does that come into play in politics? Well, I'm going to suggest that you pray this prayer every single day up to the election and allow it to shape your mind and heart. Now, let me warn you about this prayer. It's not one of those typical, Lord, fix this. It's a prayer about your heart. And it will wreck you. And it will tear you down. But it will humbly bring you at the feet of Jesus. And when we are humbly at the feet of Jesus, then and only then can we navigate our culture and our politics with wisdom. And we'll get caught up in a lot of things we shouldn't get caught up in. I mean, I see a lot of stuff on social media, on Facebook, just spreading everywhere. And I'm saying to myself, this shouldn't happen, at least in the church. I get it out there. I get what they're going to say. But in the church, we should be seeking and asking God for wisdom. Amen? So we're going to pray this together. You have it in your hand, but it also should be on the screen. Yes, there it is. Pay attention to the words. Okay? I call this a killer prayer because just it helps me to die to self. Let's pray together. Lord, I believe in you. Help me to believe more firmly. I trust in you. Help me to trust more surely. I love you. 
Help me to love you more ardently. I'm sorry for my sins. Help me to deepen my sorrow. I worship you because I came from you. I long for you because you made me for yourself. I praise you as my ever-present helper. I call on you as my powerful protector. Guide me by your wisdom. Correct me with your justice. Comfort me by your mercy. Defend me with your power. Lord, I offer you my thoughts to be centered on you, my words to speak of you, my actions to do your will, my sufferings for your sake. I want whatever you want because you want it the way you want it as long as you want it. Now just stop there for a moment. Back up to that screen there. How many people here believe God answers prayer? Okay. Think about what you just prayed. Do we really want what God wants because he wants it the way he wants it as long as he wants it? I've been praying this prayer for about eight years now. Usually at least three times a week. This will mess with your head big time, okay? And our heads need to be messed up because so often we think, not biblically, we think culturally and we wrap it up in Jesus' clothes and act like it's biblically and it's not. Okay, let's pray on. Lord, enlighten my mind, strengthen my will, purify my heart, and sanctify my spirit. Enable me to regret past offenses, resist future temptations, overcome wayward tendencies, cultivate needed virtues. Lord, in your goodness, grant me the grace to love you and forget myself, to seek my neighbor's good and despise the seduction of the world. Teach me to obey those in authority, serve those under my care, Look after my friends. Forgive my enemies. Lord, help me to overcome pleasure by simplicity, greed by generosity, anger by self-control, complacency by fervor. Make me prudent in planning, unwavering in danger, patient in adversity, unassuming in success. Keep me, Lord, attentive at prayer, moderate in food and drink, energetic in my work, firm in my resolutions. Enable me to keep my conscience clear, my bearing modest, my dealings exemplary, my life well-ordered. Lord, let me be alert to tame my natural instincts, foster the life of grace, keep your law, and receive salvation in Christ. Teach me how trivial worldly interests are, how momentous the kingdom, how brief temporal concerns are, how lasting life eternal. Lord, by your grace, enable me to prepare for death, fear judgment, escape hell, and obtain heaven. Grant this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So that's my challenge. And by the way, a prayer that lasts since the turn of the first century, I think, is worth praying. Now, the second topic this morning, Solomon talks about materialism. So we're talking about politics and materialism. Think about how offended we get with both. Solomon makes Bill Gates and Warren Buffett look poor. Okay, let's get that 
understanding. He was the most wealthy person that ever lived, past, present, and future. But today, instead of calling things materialistic, we talk about financial planning. And here's what we say. We need to accumulate stuff to maintain a certain lifestyle upon retirement. That's what we say. But are we willing to think biblically about that? Think about all the rhetoric in politics and in personal lives. Here's what I hear people saying, and here's what I hear the infomercial saying. We just need more money. If we have more money, we will fix our educational system. If we have more money, we'll fix our poverty problem. If we have more money, we will fix our health care issues. If, in fact, think about this, most of our political alliances are materialistic. If you don't believe me, ask the question, why are we almost $20 trillion in debt? Because we think we're entitled, we think we deserve, we think we have to have things that we cannot afford. But isn't it amazing? The more we get, it's never enough. And here's Solomon's point that we're going to get into this morning. He says, apart from God, it doesn't matter how much stuff you have. It will lead you to a useless, empty, purposeless life. The answer is not accumulation of more stuff. Rather, it's the accumulation of God in our heart and our soul. And that is what the church is called to be. So we want to take a biblical framework when we consider this issue this morning. And when we discuss the rich and the poor, which Solomon's going to get into, we often look at two categories, rich or poor. And let's just resolve this this morning. In terms of world richness, just in terms of the accumulation of stuff, every single person here is rich. You live in the top 10% of the world's economy. Every single person here. It's why when other countries look at even our welfare system, they call it the rich poor. So let's just kind of settle that rich are not some ethereal person out there that has money more than us. But when you look at a biblical framework, there's just not two categories, there's four. There's two kind of rich people and there's two kind of poor people, biblically speaking. And this is what we often miss. See, in Scripture, there is the righteous rich. And think about who's righteous and wealthy in Scripture. You think of people like Job, who had everything, who lost everything, and yet with his mouth did not sin, and he worshiped God. And then he got everything back again in in ways that he never dreamed of. You think about Lydia. She was very wealthy, and she funded a lot of church plants. But there's not only the righteous rich, there is the unrighteous rich. And who do you think about in Scripture? Well, you think about kings and Herod and pharaohs. Often they're political leaders. Then there's two categories of poor. There's the righteous poor, and there's the unrighteous poor. The righteous poor, you think about the widow who gives everything. You think about Ruth. And the leper who returned to give thanks to Jesus. 
And then you think about the unrighteous. And Proverbs talks about this so much. In fact, one of the words that's used is the word sluggard. Listen to one scripture in Proverbs chapter 26. And there's this entitlement mentality and refusal to work. But here's what the writer of Proverbs says. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard or a poor person on his bed. The idea they just cannot get out of bed. The sluggard buries his hand in a dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. I mean, he is so lazy he can barely get up to eat. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. See, it affects people's mind as well as their heart and their physical being. And and there's all kind of verses like this in the Proverbs. They are the unrighteous poor. So now let's look at our text. And we're going to begin at verse 8. And then we're going to come back to verses 1 through 7. Solomon says there's three principles about money and stuff that apart from God, apart from God means this is unrighteous wealth that we have to view. The verse he says is this, that the accumulation of stuff will lead to oppression. Now here's where he gets into the politics. Look at verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness... Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivate fields. The idea there is, you know what? The king's going to be interested in his own family, in his own system, and he is going to take first. And what he's saying is the political officials oppress the poor. Those in power will enslave the unfortunate. Yes, they will create welfare programs, but everyone has to take their cut on the way down. And it's why in America, our welfare system, 48 cents on every dollar collected for welfare gets to the actual person. Everyone taking their cut on the way down. That less than half of the money actually gets to the people. Solomon says that's the way it is. You take God out of the picture, expect government to cheat and he says in this verse there's all this angst and anger and ache but this is life under the sun and only a biblical model of government by the way you know what a biblical model of government is it's what we call theocracy and just in case you study history America was never a theocracy because if it was we wouldn't have a president There's only one nation that ever was a theocracy, and that was Israel, and they gave that up for kings. And how'd that work out for them? Read the evidence in the Old Testament. I think 10% of the kings were righteous. 90% were unrighteous. So Solomon says, listen, you take God out of the picture, there is going to be oppression. The political elite will oppress the poor. Why? Because there's no perfect government. We have sinful people running it. Now, the second thing he says is this, that the accumulation of stuff not only will oppress, it also will dissatisfy. There's dissatisfaction. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also his vanity. 
If you treat money as God, it will leave you empty. See, money's not the problem. The amount of money is not the problem. In fact, Paul writes these words that the love of money leads to all kinds of evil. It's the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus says you can't love God and money. Our money says in God we trust. Maybe it should read in this we trust because in America we are the wealthiest nation in the world and we have an extremely high dissatisfaction because our value is stuck with the accumulation of stuff. And it's not a hard issue like a theocracy would call us to be. He goes on to say this, thirdly, not only does, apart from God, you find oppression, you find dissatisfaction, you also find frustration. In verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. It's a nice way of saying, if you have a lot of money, people show up for it. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. With the increase of money, there's an increase of frustration. People show up, the government shows up, they want their taxes. Everybody has an opinion about what you should or shouldn't do with the money, and you lose sleep over it. And so Solomon says, listen, and this is advice coming from the most powerful, wealthy person. If you remove God out of the picture, you will be dissatisfied, you will be frustrated, and you will oppress people. And then he lets a little window open for us to see. He says, you know what? If you're an honest worker, if you're content, you can sleep at night regardless of what you have or don't have. I mean, that's what that phrase means. See, it's not the stuff that causes you to sleep. It's about where your heart is. Now, if that's not bad enough, nobody likes to be oppressed or to oppress. No one likes to be dissatisfied or frustrated. He says there are two grievous evils, and that's the phrase that he uses, that if you seek to acquire apart from God, well, let's just read in verse 13. He says, this is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurts. See, those who gain also can lose. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Anybody ever lose any money in the stock market? (laughs) And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall he take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Here's what he's saying. Hearses do not have U-Hauls behind them. How many times have you heard someone say you can't take it with you and yet we act like we can? And he says if you have it, there's a potential to lose it. Or it will go to someone who did not earn it. And if your heart is set on money, that will drive you insane. That they're going to get the money that you worked hard for and they didn't. And you're going to be concerned about how they spend it. So the first grievous evil is those who gain can lose. And second, those who live high die hard. Look at verses 16 and 17. This also is a grievous evil. He names it. Just as he came, so he shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? 
Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. And what Solomon says is this. There is no peace, no joy. There's worry, there's anxiety, there's frustration, there's anger. Because everybody just wants my money. It's never enough. Always want more. Money will not keep you from these things. In fact, if you have money, you still will get sick. You still will have accidents. It doesn't change your life. But since money drives us, even in the church been doing this for 38 years and you know you hear the whispers behind the pews or out in the parking lot where people say well you know I think the pastor just wants my money (laughs) can I remind you this morning to think biblically I'm here to tell you it's not yours (laughs) if you think it is yours that's bad doctrine and Christ wants your heart and your attitude about money is an indicator of your heart Here's what Paul writes, Timothy, who was a young preacher. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So where our heart ought to be is, number one, we should be godly people. That's thinking biblically. And number two, our hearts should be content. That's thinking biblically. Which means we don't look at who has and who doesn't have. Which means we don't evaluate or value people based upon what they have and don't have. Which means we keep our eyes on Christ. And we're not distracted. And when we keep our eyes on Christ, we are the most content people. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world. He mimics what Solomon is saying. And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And there he's talking about daily food. It's what we call man existence. That God gives us enough for that day. There's nothing left over. But we should be content with this. But those who desire to be rich, not those that are rich, those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And that last phrase is scary because it talks about us as believers that we literally can destroy our influence. That we literally can take away the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That we can live with the anger and the frustration and the discontent, even though all those possibilities exist through Christ and in his spirit. So the problem in our world is that we define people and their value by a dollar sign. I hear it when people are critical of people who have more than us, and we start saying things like this, well, if they would only pay their fair share... And we miss the joy of the Lord. We miss the fruit of the Spirit. We miss out on seeing God at work. And how every single day, no matter who we are and what place that we live in, we can be a blessing to others. Malcolm Muggeridge said this, the most terrible thing about materialism, even more terrible than its process to violence, is its boredom. 
Boredom is the loss of joy. It's the loss of peace. It's the loss of love. And I think one of the most dangerous love affairs that exists today is the love affair with money. And I know we have all this talk in the church about staying sexually pure, and we should, about not having an affair, and we should talk about that. But I do know this, that while some have never had an affair with another person, they have given themselves over to the love of money, and they've devastated their marriages and their families with this adulteress. Solomon says, listen, money and stuff can't buy you happiness. Power and money can't buy you happiness. In fact, apart from God, you will be empty, you'll be resentful, you'll be bored, you'll be absolutely miserable. But then there's a short interlude. In light of this kind of downturn of depressing ideology saying, listen, here's life without God, and you thought this would get you somewhere? He said, there are gifts that God gives us. In verse 18, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given them. You know, understanding that God gives us this privilege For this is his lot. We accept what God gives us. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The gift of enjoyment, the gift of fulfillment, the gift of contentment. Solomon says, listen, if you understand that it is God who gives us this thing, everything is a gift. But of course, the key aspect that we read is what Jesus writes in Matthew six thirty three. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is in its own trouble. And for many people today, it's time to switch kingdoms. You lived in the kingdom of this world too long. And as believers, I think there's many Christians that have lived in the kingdom of this world. Yes, they made a decision to follow Christ. But their ideology, their passions, everything else is a, a version of this world. They put religious clothes on it to make it look religious. But it's far from Christ. Now, very quickly, I just want to go back up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the first seven verses. Here's what you have to understand. Solomon, in his first part, is visiting the temple. He built, okay? And he's sitting back and he's watching worshipers coming and going. He's just observing. And here's what he found out. He says, you know, he goes, I I watch these people and not all are sincere. Some, in fact, he says, leave in worse spiritual condition when they came in. The hearts, he says are full of greed, spiritual greed, spiritual poverty. They take in, they never give out. It's a world according to itself and there is no room for others and there's absolutely no room for the creativity of God. 
And so Solomon in these words says this, be careful you do not rob God. Be careful you do not rob him of honor, of reverence. In your words, when you sing, you better not use an empty use of them. In your prayers, not an empty use. He says, we gather to worship to an audience of one. And that's who we focus, that's who we seek. And in humility, we submit ourselves to him. So let me read these verses and just think about that outline that he gets to before he talks about acquiring all this wealth. He says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. And when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not, and do not say before the messenger that this was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. I think we have a gross distortion of who we are and who God is. But the reality is we are called to be the church and we are the application of God's truth. And when it comes to the accumulation of stuff, whether it's materialism or power, we own nothing and all is God's. That's thinking biblically. And we should understand, Solomon says, that in our world of politics, there's a lot of false narratives, real and made up. And many people are living the false narrative. But what is absolute key is what matters to God. So, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In whatever category you put yourself in, rich or poor, our goal is to be the righteous rich or the righteous poor. That's the issue. Not how much we have or don't have, or not how much somebody else has or doesn't have. Maybe he God's words this morning. Due to the hour, I am going to pray for you guys, and then we're going to be dismissed. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I just appreciate your grace. And you tell us things over and over again, and yet we do not seem to understand. But I pray that you take your word this morning and rest it in our hearts. I pray that as we pray this prayer, that you give us wisdom and guidance in terms of how we navigate this life. We realize that in Christ it's all grace, that we deserve nothing. Teach us by your spirit to have and live by the fruit of the spirit. Teach us to be content. Teach us that godliness with contentment is incredible gain. And rather than discussing all these false narratives and these issues around, may we focus ourselves on what it means to be the church. I mean, that's what we are called to be. So give us wisdom, Lord, in this election coming up. Give us wisdom in our lives, at our places of work. Give us wisdom as we we continue to live. And help us to be the church. What an incredible opportunity. 
And what a joy that we have to do something that's far beyond anything this world has ever seen. Your power is so greater than ours. So thank you, Lord, for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift that you give us every single day. May we wake up and choose to bless someone with that gift. I pray for this church, Lord. I pray that we're not a church of warm bodies that gather on a Sunday morning and then go home. But rather, as we come together to worship you and you alone, we leave this place and we go out into the world and you allow us to be agents of transformation. May we be that church, Lord. May we have that dream, that vision. Thank you, Lord, for this privilege. We pray these things in your name because you alone are worthy. And everybody said, amen. You're dismissed.